Let's turn to the end of Acts 15 and let's consider something. Let's just consider that the Union forces at Gettysburg decided that they were going to work for those three days half the day, or maybe three quarters, or excuse me, one quarter of the day. Maybe uh, they got their marching orders and sort of their marching orders were to go find where General Lee was. And he was hiding behind some mountains over there in central Pennsylvania. But let's just say uh, Lee's, or excuse me, uh, the Union forces just decided, well, I'll put my eight hours in and then I'm going to go home and clean the pool and make sure I get to my golf course because I, after all, I paid $1,000 for that summer golf membership. Or, you know, I mean, I have my Netflix queued up for tonight. And I'm sure the general and his men, General Lee and his men, will sort of just take that into account. If that would have happened, our nation as we know it would be considerably different. And you could take that and apply that to any mission that you can think of. What if people who were given a mission decided they were only going to do it some of the time. What would happen to the mission? And I'm afraid that in the United States, in the United States church, that's our theory, that's our way of thinking. We find church and we sort of say, well, that's a good moral thing to do and let me go on Sundays and put my time in and then let me get back to the things that matter. Building our kingdom instead of his kingdom. Setting ourselves up for retirement, which is, by the way, just as a rabbit trail, is just such a dumb thing to do. I'm not saying not be prudent and wise, and if you do Dave Ramsey, praise the Lord, but... You ever thought, you, you know, we could die at any moment. We spend our whole life working lives trying to set ourselves up for retirement, and we're not even guaranteed tomorrow. Now, don't go out of here saying I'm against savings or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But what if, what if uh, people just didn't pay attention to the mission? Well, I got to tell you, our mission is clear. The Bible states it. You don't really even have to read that far until you get there. Our mission is to bear fruit that glorifies God. That's what the book of John tells us. Bear fruit that glorifies God. And as that is happening, we are to be on the mission to take the gospel and share it with everybody and anybody that we can. And oh, by the way, not just share the gospel. There's only one command in Jesus's last commission. Well, I shouldn't say it that way, but there's one command in the Greek that's really emphatic. And you know what it is? It's to make disciples. And the American church is really weak at that. In fact, we don't even know, really know what or how that happens. Do we preach the gospel to them and leave? Do we leave it up to other people? And uh, 
I want to show you in the book of Acts how the mission continues. How the mission continues here as we move to the second missionary journey. That's what we're going to be studying today. We've already moved on now from the first. And the mission continues, but here's the thing. The mission doesn't stop just because we live in southwestern PA or wherever we live in this decade or in this era. Our mission as the church is the same. And here's the cool part. Our resource for carrying out the mission is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So nothing's changed. What's changed is the enemy has come in and has said, do you really need to live like this? Let's just live part-time or half-time or put our time in on Sundays and go home and forget it. Let's compartmentalize our lives. And really, that's no option. For when you understand the centrality and the power and the plan and the program that the Father sent the Son to perform or accomplish. And when that plan becomes real in your life, as the Holy Spirit draws you and brings you into relationship with God through the Son, when that happens, the Bible tells us that you have a new nature. A new, you're a new creation. You're not better Tim or better Jan. You're new Tim, or put your own name in there. It's not that you're better, like God's improving you. That's Susie Orman, Tony Robbins. I better not use the word, but stuff. But the gospel is something way more radical and different. So mission. The mission is, is that you would bear fruit that glorifies the Lord while you're sharing the gospel making disciples and baptizing people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit until the last person hears. Here's, I want you to know something, folks. If you go out on the missions website, I'll just make it simple. I won't give you all the statistics. Ethnos 360, which used to be New Tribe, says one-third of the world's population still needs to hear the gospel. One-third. Seriously? In this day and age, with planes and fast ships or whatever it is, helicopters, and one-third, man, that's on us. And so we turn to Acts 16. And really, we begin in 15 at verse 36, because that's where the second missionary journey begins. Do we have the second missionary journey map? Great. He's going to put that up there for us and just read with us right here. Would you read with us right here? Then after some days, verse 36 of chapter 15, Paul. Now I want you to remember something, who Paul is. You go to Acts chapter 9. Paul's a Jew. A, he's one of those people that follow the letter of the law to the nth degree and gets mad if you don't. And he is trained in the greatest school of Judaism. And when the people of Christ, of the way, 
followers of Christ come on the scene. He gets really upset. I mean, so upset, you know this, that he becomes a killer of Christians. He puts the hit out on Christians. He pulls them out of their houses. He searches them, searches them out. And on the way to Damascus, the Lord appears to him or speaks to him and says, Paul, Saul, why, why are you persecuting me? And you know that encounter, and he gives his life to Christ. That's who we're speaking of here. And he and Barnabas, the son of encouragement or consolation, this wonderful man who's an encourager, have gone on this missionary journey. And it says here in 36, now let's go back and visit our brethren in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Listen to this. So the second missionary journey is almost a backward route. It's not exactly from where they went the first time. You get what I'm saying? First time they went one way, now they're backtracking. And that's a neat thing because we're going to meet a gentleman here, a young guy that comes along on the journey. He's got such an amazing name, Timothy. Young guy, good looking. I don't know about the good looking part, but anyway. And he's going to take him and uh, he tells Timothy in one of his writings, he, he advises as he's discipling Timothy, listen to this, to fulfill his ministry. And the reason he can say that is, is because Paul fulfills his ministry. Look, makes his ministry full, fulfill, fills it up. And what he does is you see the pastor's heart here, the pastor's heart, the shepherd's heart. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and the spirit of Christ has come upon Paul. And what is he concerned about? Not saying, hey, just say a prayer of repentance and have a nice life. He goes back. I can't believe, didn't Woody Allen say three quarters or something like this of life is just showing up? Something like that. I can't believe I worked Woody Allen into a sermon. But I would say in terms of uh, um, ministry, and all of you are ministers, <laughs> just being there, consistency, going back, checking on people, saying hi, calling them, loving them. That's what Paul shows us here. He goes, let's go back and visit our brothers and sisters in every city where we've preached the word of the Lord. You know how taxing and exhausting this is? This isn't airplanes, folks. This is foot traffic. And not knowing where you're going to live and you don't schedule your hotel and et cetera, or Airbnb. And let's see how they're doing. What a heart of a shepherd. Barnabas was determined to take with them. John called Mark. You'll recall on the first missionary journey, we don't know why, but Mark left the mission. And Paul didn't like it. He must not have. You're about ready to read it. This is another reason, by the way, folks, that I love the Bible. If I were writing the Bible, I wouldn't put this story in here. I would want you to think, 
probably how great we are and, you know, have the halos and, oh, walk around so nicey-nice all the time. It's so, boy, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, puts in here a disagreement that almost or could have fractured these people's ministry. So Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. Why do you think Barnabas was determined? Well, Barnabas, first of all, is the one who'd say, come on now, he made a mistake. Let's give him some mercy here. But you got to think of something else. It's his relative. You know from Colossians 4 that Barnabas and John Mark, the one who wrote the book of Mark, are related. So of course he's going to want to take him. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Paul more, I need to trust him. He didn't earn my trust. We can still be brothers, but he's not coming here. You understand. That's what he's saying. And then the contention became so sharp. You see, the Bible doesn't mince words. Here are two loving brothers, new creations in Christ, who have a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement. And so Barnabas took Mark and he went to Cyprus. He went over to that Island, And by the way, Cyprus is where Barnabas had a property. And so they probably knew a lot of people and he could take his relative over there. But Paul chose Silas and departed. So here we have a new guy. His name's Silas. And Paul chose him and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. Now, folks, there's a couple things I want to tell you here. We're not to do anything in the Christian life without faith supplied or and supply that comes from the grace of God. It's not just grace that enters you into the family of God. It's grace, God's grace and resource and life that has you travel the Christian life. Grace to be sanctified, to be more Christ-like. But look at this, grace also to serve. And what is the, this is a terrible way of saying it, who is a picture or, or you see God's grace in the person and work of the Holy Spirit because he's given to us for resource and life. We don't just live this life in our own best efforts. We live this life overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and his power. That's where we live the Christian life. And so you see it here. And so Barnabas takes Mark, he goes to Cyprus, but Paul takes Silas. Now you get Silas. I mean, who is Silas? He's, we know from Acts 15 that he's, you know, he's a leader among the brethren, which would mean that he was a servant and he served and he ministered to the church. He was a Roman citizen. That's important. We see that in uh, this chapter 16. And we think he probably spoke Greek you see how the Lord started to take his talents? Uh, you, you compare Acts 15.22 and Acts 15.32, and most people come up with the fact that he probably spoke Greek. And he wrote out one of Peter's letters, 1 Peter 5.12, and maybe some of Paul's letters. You can see that in the first verse of First and Second Thessalonians. And he was chosen, this is an important job, to take these conference or council decrees from Acts 15. I won't go back over it. 
But he was chosen to take these to the churches. That means they trusted him. So that's who this Silas is. And it seems natural that Paul would take him. Now, folks, the Bible, Jesus himself gave us instructions. I want you all to look up here because I don't want you to call me and say, I'm mad at blank. And I'm going to say, did you talk to blank? And you're going to say, no. And I'm going to say, goodbye. Because the Bible says, if you come to the altar, you come to worship, and you have something against the brother and sister, just lay it all down. Lay, lay it down. Run out of the church and get it right with your brother or sister. Don't hold on to grudges in the Christian life because we know that Paul, or Paul and John Mark, at the end of their lives or at the end of Paul's lives, there was reconciliation. They didn't let this fester their whole lives. Can there be great disagreement among brothers and sisters in the church? Sure. Not everybody wants to do things the same way or is led to do things the same way, but we don't hold it against people. Are you holding a grudge today? If you're holding a grudge, pray right now. And as we go and pray, how you can go and ask for forgiveness or receive forgiveness or whatever, but get it right. Keep short accounts with God and with people, and they did. It's a beautiful story. And what I think we want to see is we're on mission to go to all the world. And if you're engaged in this all the time, you're detracting from the mission. You're spending time on things that's not really the mission, although it does build Christ-likeness. I mean, come on, folks. If the Spirit of God lives in you, the Spirit of Christ lives in you, if that is true of you, well, Jesus is being crucified and hung on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them. These apostles who had the Spirit of Christ getting stoned and their heads being bashed in, Father, please forgive them. Come on now. We can uh, forgive people if they sit in our pew chair, our pew seat. Maybe they didn't say hi to you at church and you let that... Come on now. Come on. We're detracting from the mission. We're taking time on things that we could be out sharing and showing people a unified church who loves and would do anything to share the gospel with them and make them disciples. That's it. So now you come <clears throat> to chapter 16. And then he came to Derby. Okay, we got it. There you go. So we're going to go up the coast. We're going to go to Antioch. Uh, I guess we're in yellow here. Is that what we're in? What is that? Excuse me, we're in, what is that color? What is that, purple? Man, I got colorblind kids, but I didn't think I was. So yes, so fuchsia, purple. We're going up to Derby, then over to Lystra. Then we're going, look, look, we're going to go all the way over to Troas. See it up there? And you're going to go past Samothrace, an island, and go to Philippi. In other words, listen, this is huge. The gospel's going to Europe right now. That's what this means. The first missionary journey stayed here. We didn't really get all the way out. 
But now, Europe, that's where we're going, or that's where the Lord's taking us, or taking the church. So they come to Derby and Lystra. Come to, that's southeast Galatia. That's the region of Galatia. Anybody know the term Galatia? Yeah, because a book was written about it or written to the churches over there called Galatians, right? You know that. And uh, you can see what they did earlier on the first missionary journey in chapter 14. Remember at Lystra, there was idolatry. The people wanted to call Paul and Barnabas Zeus and the gods and all that sort of thing. And they're like, hey, don't call us that. We're nobodies. And... Um, and they wanted to sacrifice to them. And then watch in verse 19 of chapter 14. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there in Lystra. And having persuaded the multitudes, can you imagine? You, you know, you just read this stuff and you're like, oh, okay, great. They stoned them in Lystra. Stoned them. You know, if I was making my travel itinerary for missionary journey two, I'd go, hmm. Lystra, <laughs> X, but not them. So they're going back, and then they go to Derby here in a minute, and you're going to see this. The next day in verse 20 of chapter 14, he departed with Barnabas to Derby, Paul did. And when he had preached the gospel to that city, he made many disciples, and they returned to Lystra. In other words, they were successful what we would call successful in Derby. I just want you to see that. Now watch, keep going. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Timothy, what a great kid. But anyway, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. Now we know from other places that his mom's name is Eunice. There's a good name for a young lady if you're having a baby. Eunice. It's beautiful, is Jewish, and uh, she's Jewish, and his dad is Greek, and the grandmom is Lois, and she's Jewish. So anyway, they were very influential in this man's life, this young man's life. They prayed him into the kingdom. They were saints who loved the Lord and served the Lord and seemed to be the first in the family to trust in Christ, and we get that from 2 Timothy. And Paul called Timothy his beloved son or his son in the faith in places in the New Testament. And he was a, co a companion and co-worker with him. And he received good reports from how he was serving in the churches. And so Paul added him here. And um, he becomes eventually the pastor of the church. Listen to this. In Ephesus, see how it all gets tied together? 1 Timothy 1, 3. Okay, that's this guy, this young person in the faith. And you know what's wild? Keep this now. All right, everybody wake up. It's hot. We got ACs coming. These people are getting stoned and we're worried about 75 degree day. But here's what I want you to know is Paul had this interesting way of bringing young people around him. And when you read the end of Paul's letters a lot, Paul, who was theologically, theologically at the highest of highs, I mean, he was sharp, folks. He, had, he also had friends, and he had a lot of them. He didn't just stay in his books. 
And remember, extra-biblical tells us that Gamaliel, the greatest rabbi at the time, wrote that he couldn't keep Paul in books. He would bring them and he would devour them. But when Paul gets saved, he is theologically smart and an intellectual, but he doesn't just stay with the books. He has friends and he brings young people around and he disciples them and old people too. And one of the things that I think you and I should get from this study, write it down. Don't say, I'm just going to go on and move on to Memorial Day and cook burgers. I think you should write this down, that every one of us in this room, including me, starting with me, every one of us should have a Paul or be a Paul. We should have people that we're discipling. Well, so be a Paul. We should have people we're discipling, watch this, and people discipling us. Do you have that? Ask yourself right now. If it's not, say, why not? Pray about it. Don't just go Monday or Tuesday to your job and just keep going. God, bring me into a place where I could disciple somebody. But also, Lord, bring uh, somebody to help disciple me. I think there's another thing you should have in your life. <laughs> and I'm probably not it. This isn't my love language. She's going to laugh when I say this. You probably should have a Barnabas. Somebody to encourage you and love you and stick with you. I mean, that's just not my love language. But it probably should be. Who here is, has the love language of... Uh, what, what is it when they do that? Encouragement, when people encourage you and just, right, look at the hands pop up. You need encouragement. Get a Barnabas in your life. And nobody wrote this down. And I'm going to quiz you down at the buffet when you're like shot out with food. See, because I just want you to know that the church in America does a horrible job. It's terrible of discipling people. Nobody disciples anymore. What we do is we share the gospel and say, good luck. But he, they, he didn't. He brought people around him. And he told them, don't let anybody despise your youth. You're going to grow and be a person who has valuable contribution to the body of Christ. And Timothy certainly was an example of that. So he brings them around. And he was well spoken of by the brethren, this Timothy. Paul, verse 3, wanted to have him go on. And he took him and circumcised him. You got to, folks, come on. You got to go major time out right here. You got to be saying to yourself, what? Because you probably shouldn't do Acts chapter 15, stop, and go back to Acts 16. Because in Acts 15, that was the big thing. They had the big conference in Jerusalem and say, does everybody have to be, actually, they said, do Gentiles have to be circumcised to be saved? And the answer came back, of course not. No, they don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And here, he's like, Timothy, I got some good news and some bad news. <laughs> uh, hey, listen, you're on the A team. You're coming with me. Not me, but Paul. But here's the other thing. I'm going to need to circumcise you myself. It's what the language says, by the way. Most people believe Paul actually performed the circumcision. But wait a minute. Why did he do it? Everybody, I'm glad you winced. Why did he do it? Because I want you to know something. Guess what happened with Titus? 
another young man in the faith. Guess what Paul said? Don't you dare circumcise him. What? Remember who Timothy was. Is He has Jewish blood on his mother's side and Greek blood on his father's side. Titus is, all, is a Gentile, no Jewishness. And Paul is getting ready to take him into places where there's going to be Jews. And you know, if you've studied Paul's writings, Paul said, <laughs> Paul said this about himself, and it was his philosophy of ministry. Lord, make me anything to anybody. I will be anything to anybody to get the gospel to them. <laughs> You're all just going, oh, okay, I read that before. But I don't think you get the implications of that. Paul was free and told us that for salvation, Gentiles did not have to get circumcised to be saved. But he knew when he and this new young guy went into the Jewish areas to minister to the Jews, they would ask and wonder and hope that the people that were, they would have a special inroad with people or two people who were similar. And so he asked him to get circumcised for the ministry and for the sake of the Lord. Are you getting it? He bent. He was flexible. He, he did things. Why? Not so we could go through a ritual or a rule, but so that people could receive the gospel. And he wanted to move any impediment from that in his life or in his team's life. You catch this? That means like wearing masks. I said this during the pandemic, and I don't think I'm kidding. I would wear a pink bunny suit up here if you let me share the gospel. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, Paul said, you know, I can go down by the temple and get in the meat areas and boom, just take a stab on my stick and just chomp away on those, that meat that had been dedicated to idols. It has no bearing on my relationship with the Lord, none. But when I do that, the people around it's starting to really shake them, and so I'm not going to do it. I'm free to do it, but I'm not going to do it because I would rather see them come to Christ than me eat that piece of meat. You're all shaking your head, but let me bring up drinking, and we'll see. Every time I talk about drinking, I get in trouble. I can't believe a pastor in 2023 who speaks about drinking gets so much animosity towards it. Where are in the world are we headed? But think about it. <laughs> That's another area where you're probably free to have alcohol. But why? <laughs> to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit and to stay on mission. Firing up the iPhones now. 
So Paul was like this, and he, he, he actually circumcised Timothy. Can you believe it? I mean, this is drastic. He'll go to any length to share the gospel and make disciples. So they, as they went through the cities, verse 4, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and old elders at Jerusalem. It's almost funny. He circumcised Timothy, and they're dropping off the decree that says you don't have to be circumcised. Did you catch this? That's what the decree is. But they're flexible. They have a bigger issue. It's not my rights or the highway. It's what can I do to further the kingdom? I'll do anything. That's what their life is like. They understood that they, their life, Paul wrote. Do you know this? Paul wrote this. Our lives, my life is not my own. Do you know your life if you're a surrendered, born-again Christian? It's not your life. Sorry. My life is not my own. I'm a servant of the king. I'll do anything for the mission of what you ask me, Lord. If you want me to go there, I'll go. If you want me to have those circumstances in my life, it's well with my soul. My life is not my own. That's what they knew. And I'm afraid that we don't know that very much. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. That means Turkey, by the way. It doesn't mean China. It means Turkey. Over here, Asia. They were forbidden. Paul said, I think I know what I want to do. I want to go up into Asia, man, Turkey area, and I want to preach the gospel. And the Bible says that they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit. How were they forbidden? I don't exactly know because it doesn't say, but were they given a prophecy? Yes, probably. Did the Lord shut the doors somehow? Yes. Were they so in tune in their prayer life? Was the Lord speaking to them through his word and other ways? Yes. And so they're forbidden to go preach the word in Asia. And after they'd come to Mesia or Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. Boy. But the Spirit didn't permit them. Folks, I just want you to know something. Come on. We live in the church. We've got places to go and people to share with. And you're saying, should I or shouldn't I? Here's the answer. Get with the Lord. Pray together. Be a community of prayers and praisers and hear from the Lord and ask him to show you. Open the doors and shut the doors and be in tune, in touch with the Holy Spirit. He'll shut the doors. He'll send you where he wants you to go. And if you start to venture out and you know it's not from the Lord, come back and start again. What's the big deal? So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. There you go. They're all the, all the way out to the coast. You see that? And a vision appears to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him. See where Macedonia is? We're going to Europe. And this uh, man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him and said, come over to Macedonia and help us. By the way, what's the greatest help you can give anybody? The gospel. 
Now, do you need to give them food and water and clothes? Oh, of course. And help them with their shelter? Sure. Of course. Social gospel or gospel? Yes. I mean, do it both, but they got to hear the word too. As you develop relationships with people through helping, through serving, don't just tie them into hell. Hey, how you doing? Great to see you for 20 years. Hi, I'm friendly. Speak of the Lord around them. Share or sing to the Lord around them. Extol or uh, shout his praises as you go about your life. You're going to see it here in a minute. Uh, Sarah Zimmer gave me a book by Charles Spurgeon. And the book is about how to praise more. And he goes through why we should praise. And one of the reasons he he says why we should praise amongst a lot of them is so that praise reaches the ears of people who don't believe. And they wander and hear the scriptures and the things you're singing about, and they wander and want to ask. And so here you have this man standing and saying, help us. Well, what's the help? The help is bringing the gospel to Europe. And after he had seen the vision, immediately, now watch, this is a key word in the book right here, we. It's the first time we is used in Acts, which most people believe Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, a physician, joined the mission, where? At Troas. Which, look, Paul gets here and he wants to go right. The Holy Spirit says, no, 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 you're going to go left. And one of the great things that God did by going left was he hooked up Paul and Silas and Timothy and watch Luke. Luke now joins the mission. So here he says, now after he'd seen the vision, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, Paul in his wants and desires, wanted a region. God, in his wants and desires, wanted a continent. Did you catch that? It's bigger than even Paul knew. God knew. (laughs) So there they go. They sail from Troas, and they run a straight course to Samothrace. Anybody like to boat? Anybody like to boat? Raise your hand if you like to boat. You own a boat? Yeah, you own a boat. Who owns a boat in here? Raise your hand. Oh, good. You never invited me. Thanks a lot. (laughs) I'm kidding. He has invited me. But listen, they just used, it's funny to me, they used a nautical term here. Ran a straight course in the Greek is sort of a boating term. In other words, the wind was really with them and they were going fast. And in fact, they were going fast because it only took them two days to reach this place, Neapolis. When they come back, they need five or six days. And from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia. Now, do you know this, folks? Do you understand that every place around the Mediterranean Sea is dominated by one city or country? Do you know this right now at the time we're reading? Rome, Italy, they dominate this place. And Philippi, after they get to Neapolis was a 
incredibly Roman dominated city. It was a colony. So that if you were from Italy and you moved to Philippi, you didn't have to pay any taxes because they wanted you to go. And so what comes with Roman influence? Lots of gods, lots of gods, worship a lot of deities. What else comes? You know, oh, hey, oh, you believe in that deity? The one of God of Abraham? Okay, great. As long as you plunk him in there with the rest of them. You understand this? And it was a, you know, a cosmopolitan city and all the things that come with all of that. It was very wealthy. It was very wealthy. And it was actually like, quote unquote, little Rome. That's what Philippi's like. So when you read the book of Philippians, that's all about joy, I think it takes on a new twist for you, knowing what the city was like. I mean, this is how to live the Christian life in a world that hates everything you believe. Does it sound familiar? That's because it is. This is how we're navigating. So they go to this place called Philippi, which is the foremost city. It's a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. You see how Luke says we were in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, the day they, uh, they would go out to the, of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made. Now, you know, from extra biblical writings, we know that a synagogue was only allowed in a city or an area where 10 or more men professed their uh, allegiance to the Jewish religion. So it must not have been very prevalent because they don't have a synagogue like they always do, but they did find a prayer group. There's this little clandestine, I don't know if it was clandestine, but this little small prayer group and down by the river. And we come now to the first convert in Europe. You ever thought about that? Here comes the first convert in Europe. We sat down and spoke to the woman who met there. What a beautiful thing, the women down there praying. Guys, get to the prayer meeting. Don't just leave it up to the ladies. Praise the Lord for the ladies. They're so faithful and they come, but don't just leave it up to the ladies. Get to the prayer meeting. You want your family to be blessed. You want to spread the gospel in your family. Well, quit complaining and come. How's that? Amen. There you go. And so... They go down to the prayer group, and a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira. Thyatira, I don't know if it's on there, but it's over by Pergamum. She's across the pond, man. For some reason, she went over there, and it's probably because of the next, or well, because of the sentence before, she was a seller of purple. Purple dye was expensive. Most people believe Lydia was a very astute businesswoman who came to the city probably to do her business uh, and sell the garments and all that sort of thing. And if you look at the last verse of this chapter, apparently her house was a place where the brothers and sisters met with more, uh, it tells us even more that she probably was a very successful business person. God bless her. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Isn't that a beautiful way of saying it? 
When somebody gives their life to Christ, the Lord opens their heart. And that is true. The Bible tells us in the book of John that God draws people, right? Do we respond to that drawing? Yes. Is it God's sovereignty or is it man's responsibility? Uh-huh, yeah. But here, what a beautiful way of saying it. She opened up her heart to the Lord, which means we need to pray that people would open their heart to the Lord. If you're sitting here and you've never opened your heart to the Lord, today's the day of salvation. And when she and her household were baptized, listen to this, she begged us. She's a good salesperson. She begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful, how's Paul going to say no now? This is upselling at its finest, the first place in the Bible. She does it. If you've judged me to be faithful, what's Paul going to say? No, you're not faithful? No, he says, yeah, I do think you're faithful. So she says, oh, then come and stay at our house. She had the gift of hospitality. And many Christians have that. So she persuaded us. And now it happened as she went to prayer. This is a theme over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Don't tune out now. As soon as there's triumphs and victories in the Christian life, look what happens. Attack, a spiritual attack. And here it comes. It happened as we went to prayer. By the way, the enemy wants to prevent you from coming to prayer. That a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination. That's a really interesting Greek word. It actually says pneuma pythona, like a python. It has a snake-like spirit. In other words, it's from the enemy. She has a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit. They were using her. There were people pimping her out for money, but using these demonic powers. That's what's happening. So there they are, and they're doing this, and this girl is following Paul and us, the whole team, and they're crying out, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. Now, it's not wrong. That's what they're doing. And she was doing this for many days, but Paul was annoyed. Praise the Lord. I, I'm praising God for that sentence. That means... He and I sometimes are on the same plane. Maybe you feel that way. But he was annoyed and he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Christ to come out. And, and he came out that very hour. He came out that very hour. The, sp the spirit. And, but when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Now, if you've been in Israel or some of the ancient places, you know that the gates to the city, you actually can see these when you go. The gates to the city had judgment seats, bema seats, judgment seats, and they would do their business and they would bring people there and they would judge them. And it seems that's what they're doing. And they didn't just bring them into the marketplace or the gate to the city. They dragged them there. They're handling them rough. What for? For healing a girl of a demonic spirit. And they brought them to the magistrates, verse 20. So they bring them to the judges and say, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. Really? They're down at the little prayer meeting. I mean, there's 10 people down there. Come on. Really? 
boy, they must have really spoke up and loved and cared for people. They noticed them. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us. That seems to indicate that they knew they were of Jewish descent. Seems like that. But anyway, being Romans, uh, that, that are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. And then the multitude rose up together against them. And the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. Are you kidding me? I just got to tell you, most people right about here would have been on the purple highway to Jerusalem. Get me out of this. I didn't sign up for this. Beaten with rods, and it seems to suggest a long cane. It's not the scourging that Jesus received on the cross. This is one of those long canes, sort of like a metal, or wasn't metal, but you know, bamboo-like thing. Whack! Like making meat tenderizer of their backs. That's what this was. And they beat them, and they beat them like crazy. And you know, the Jewish folks had a limit on how many lashes there could be. There was a limit, but there's no limit with the Romans. They can do as they please. And so they were beaten. Here again, they're beaten. Now, I just want you to turn with me over to 2 Corinthians just for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. I speak as a, or are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors, more abundant in stripes above measure in prison, more frequently in death. Often from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods. That's what the Romans would do. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day. In journeys, often in perils of water, in perils of robber, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Are you getting the message? Don't, don't tune out. Don't tune out. In perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often. Some of you are catching up on it right now. But anyway, in hunger and thirst in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things which come upon me daily. Watch. My deep concern for all the churches. <laughs> like, like if one of those perils came to us, we'd be like, oh Lord, who are you to send a peril to me? And Paul says here, none of that stuff mattered. Yeah, I didn't really want to go through it, but none of it had mattered. Why? Listen, don't miss it. Because Paul wanted the people in the churches to get it. He would do anything in his life. He'd go through all of this just for one person or the church to get it, to, to understand and to know the gospel and to serve the Lord. Oh, man. So... They were beaten, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. 
Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison. What's the inner prison? It's the nasty part of the prison. It's the dark, dank, smelly, awful part of the prison where nobody could get to them and it was bad. And they put their feet in stocks, which would be terribly uncomfortable. And I want you just to think for a minute. I know you want to go home. I know you want to eat. But if you don't make this, if you don't catch this, you don't catch it. I want you to think about you going. You've said to the Lord, Lord, I want to go right. The Lord says, I want you to go left. And there could be a tendency to argue right there. Lord, okay. I'll go left, but I really don't think you know what you're doing. In fact, I'm going to hold on to this. I'm going to hold on to it through the whole trip. And if something goes wrong, I'm going to bring it back up in your face, Lord, because I think we should go right. So now we go left because you've asked us to. We've gone across the sea. We started this really pleasant fellowship down at the river. Oh, it was so beautiful. In fact, one of the friends we met there is a beautiful lady who's really rich. And she has us over to the house and it's, wow, we just drink our tea and it's amazing. And the next thing you know, you've been beaten, pulverized like meat. And your legs have been put in the stocks and you've been put in, put in a prison what would you really say? You know what you would say. You would say, God, I told you. You had no idea what you were doing. Why in the world a man like me, Paul, a man like me, so intelligent I am, so willing. I mean, that would be the tendency. I'm not saying Paul did that. That's your tendency. That's my tendency. I'm so disappointed with you, Lord, because now... It's the end. In fact, I'm in this place. To the people who are watching, I look like I'm guilty because I'm in a prison. That would be the tendency. Wouldn't it be the tendency? You know what's funny? Is over here in the next couple chapters, listen to this. It says that the world, or excuse me, the church turned the world upside down. In other words, the way the world thinks is completely different than the way a Christian is supposed to think or does think. But when you get to this point, your tendency could be to say, I told you, Lord, you didn't know what you were doing. You have stopped me. Who am I going to preach to in here now? That's what you could say. And so you go on and it says, but at midnight, why do you think the writer put at midnight? Because it's like the rough hour at midnight. Paul and Silas were not saying, why did you send me left? They prayed and they sang. And the Bible tells us in Psalm 42 and also in Job 35 that he'll give you songs in the night. Anybody here ever been in that place? And you've gotten songs from the Lord and you're like, whoa. And at midnight, Paul and Silas, they're praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners, I want you to see this. Why do you think he put them in there? There would have been nobody to share with the prisoners. 
nobody to share with the jailers. And instead of saying, God, you have no idea what you're doing, they prayed and they praised. And the prisoners listened. Look, folks, if you're in a job that you hate, I am sympathize with you, but you're there and I'm not. And the people, the prisoners there are listening. God's put you there because he wants them to be reached. And we complain against the plan that he has. Oh, you're welcome to put your resume together. Try for another job. Sure. And if the Lord does it, great. But while you're there, the prisoners are listening. And here's what sometimes they hear. They hear nothing different than what the worldly people say. Complain, complain, complain. I hate this place. I can't wait to get out of this place. Instead of praising the Lord in the prison with the prisoners, when you as a Christian in reality are totally free, whether they have you behind a bar or not, you're totally free, but they're not. They're still in bondage to sin and they need the gospel. And one of the ways that God uses is he puts you in terrible places. Why? Not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. And he wants others to come to know you in a real and saving way. And we gripe and complain the whole time. Amen. And so the prisoners here, and suddenly there's a great earthquake. Imagine that. And the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors are opened and everyone's chains are loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, oh, he's like, "Uh uh-oh, it's over for me. The doors are all open. I'm going to get my head lopped off by the powers to be, the Roman powers. The prisoners have fled. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, hey, don't harm yourself. We're all here. We stayed. That's a great lesson for us. Are you willing to say yes to wherever the Lord sends you? Or are you just willing to say yes to where you want to go? And here he sends them and they all say, you can open the doors, whatever. We're here for them. We're here for you. We love you. You can beat us with whatever you want to beat us with. You can put us in these nasty conditions. We're still going to love you. There's no law against that. You can't legislate that. So they called for a light, verse 29, or he called for a light, ran in, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. When somebody comes into love like that, they're in awe. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Which tells you something. He was listening to. He was listening to the songs in the night. The ones where you thought it was over, where they thought it could have been over, where there was no purpose or hope for them. They were listening to the songs in the night. The jailer was. He got up and he listened and he heard about how the Lord saves. And they said, believe on the Lord. Or he said, "Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour. Watch this. Everybody debates this. Do you have to repent 
in order to be saved or you just have to believe? And the answer is yes. This guy was already repenting, and you see it in the way in which he was after he surrendered his life to Christ. What does he immediately do? It almost makes you want to cry. The people who he was charged with beating and guarding, after he gets baptized, can you imagine wiping and washing the stripes on the back of the people you had beaten? That, that's repentance, man. You talk about repentance, owning up to it and being transparent. Here he goes. He, he heals or he washes them. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. When he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And look, it's always indicative of the, of the, of the Lord coming into your life. There's joy. This doesn't mean you can't be sad sometimes and you're sad over issues, but there's a deep-seated joy. And he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Now, I want you to know something. Who knows whether he's going to get killed or not by the Romans? Are you catching that? That doesn't matter anymore to him. He knows he's got eternal life. Even death can't keep him from rejoicing. So, and when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers. Guess what that word officers means in the Greek? It means the rod bearers. In other words, the people that beat him specifically, the guys who actually carried it out, were sent and to say, let these men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, well, they've beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. Here comes the punchline and have thrown us into prison. I don't know if you remember this. Paul was a Roman citizen, folks, which means prior to the time that Paul got beat with the rods, guess what he could have said? I'm a Roman citizen, which means they couldn't have beat him on the back, but he didn't do it. Are you catching this? None of this mattered to him. What mattered was people's souls, their lives, their eternal destiny. That's what mattered to Paul. And I wonder, does it matter to us, like really matter? Well, I hope it does. And Paul said to them, they've beaten us openly. We're Romans. Now, did they put us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and get us out. Paul wanted to make sure that as they continued to minister in the Roman world, they had a clean reputation. And the officer told these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and they entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, right? To, it's just amazing to me, the spirit of Christ. I would have went over to Lydia's house and say, Lydia, Everybody in Philippi, you need to help us. We feel like crud. We're just beaten and bloody, and we did this all for you. So could we just, could we have some food? Can you do the fan on us? Maybe wipe up our feet a little bit? That's not what it says. It's incredible. They encouraged the church at Lydia's house. 
Paul is an unstoppable force, and I want you to see that. But here's the thing. You're an unstoppable force when you're filled up with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing that can stop us. I don't care if there's 100 people in here or 10 people in here or 50 or 5 million. It's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So I hope this has helped you. We're going to have our friends come up, and I think they're going to lead us in one last song because the baker told us we can't eat till 1230. But as we go out and as we worship, I I want you to know something. Songs come in the night. And if you don't think so, you're wrong. People are watching. They're watching. They're watching you when the worst circumstances of life hit. Guess what the uh, the worldly people are doing? They're watching. And as you share the gospel with them now, you have a connection with them that maybe you didn't have before because they know you've been through it. And listen, he's real. He's real in your life. It's authentic for you. This isn't some game we're playing or some paradigm. It's the living Christ in you and me. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we do. We come and we lift up this time and we pray, Lord, that you would do a mighty work in our hearts here. Lord, just fill us to overflowing with your Holy Spirit so that we could live like this and love like this and be on mission like this and disciple like this. But Lord, we can. Even though Paul has done all these things, you've given us your Spirit. Lord, help us. Help us to lay it all down. Give it all to you. All the worldly things and Stay on mission until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.